Good morning. Welcome to Mount Calvary Church. My name is Matt Watson, and I'm the lead pastor, and we are grateful that you're here with us today. It's a beautiful day. Um, We're so grateful that we can sing and we can worship, we can hear God's Word taught, that we can be in relationship with one another. And as we open up God's Word this morning, join me as we pray. Father, we're thankful for the truth of the songs that we've been able to sing this morning, Uh, that your mercy in Christ at the cross and at the resurrection was greater than anything we could do, even the sin of putting you up on that cross. And so, God, this morning we come together corporately as a body, as a family of believers, and we worship you because of your mercy that's found in Christ. You're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our singing. You're worthy of our commitment and our lives and how we think and what we do with our money and our time. And we come together collectively this morning to tell you that. God, as we continue to to think about your word, as we think about the first church, as we start to set our sights to the resurrection, to, to the Friday before the resurrection. God, we pray that you would work in our minds, you'd work in our hearts, that you'd help us to think deeper about the text and acts, that you would stir our hearts um, to continue to worship you deeply. And God, that's, that's my prayer, too, for this church, God, that you would help us to do that. So, God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come, your Holy Spirit would speak, your Holy Spirit would convict, your Holy Spirit would encourage us that we would walk with you today and this week. It's in your name we pray, amen. So we are, I know I said this last week, we are wrapping up this week, though, the Devoted Church series, and then kind of the second half of our sermon this morning, we're going to set our sights to Easter, to, to Good Friday, to the, to the resurrection. Um, this next week, uh, Lent, we'll start on Wednesday, and we'll talk more about that as we go um, in the sermon. But last week, I had meant to talk about not just the consistency and the commitment of the first church, but we also wanted to talk about the worship and the praise of the first church. And so I'll throw the verse that we focused on last week up on the screen. Um, focusing on Acts 2, thinking, how can we be like the church in Acts? We want to do whatever we can, whatever it takes to focus on and do what, like the first church has done. And so last week we focused on these last couple verses in Acts 2 that described the consistency and the commitment of the first church. But as the, and so they were focused on being together day by day, meeting with one another. They didn't neglect it, but they valued it. Being with one another to encourage one another, to help each other. But not only did they meet consistently, not only were they committed to the the gathering of God's people, but what did they do when they met? And verse 47 tells us they praised God. 
And so last week we traced kind of the the theme of worship and praise through the scripture. Because again, our question is, as we're thinking through the scripture is, well, why do we worship? Why is it that we just spent 15 minutes singing songs? Are we doing what we should be doing as a church? But if you look historically, you will see through the beginning of the Bible, through God's work with people, that his community has been a worshiping community. Through the Old Testament, worship in the Psalms. Moses, even backing up to Exodus, I was reading Moses as he got through the Red Sea with the Israelites, how they turned back and it says that they worshiped and praised God for what he had done. Or David in the Psalms who says, I will worship you for as long as the sun is rising and setting. God's people historically have been committed to singing praises and worship to God. And we talked about historically how there was a time in the, within the Roman Empire with Constantine, how the church was silenced. The styles of worship were left for those who were professional, yet the worshiping church prevailed. Okay, and we see worship happening in the first church in Acts. We see it historically happening. And the question for us then is this, what is worship? What is praise and what does it do? What is praise and what does it do? Just thinking about our church here. Okay, worship and praise has looked very differently over the life of this church. Has it not? BJ? How long have you been here, BJ? So worship and praise has looked a little bit different over the years. Today looks different than your first day. It does. And that's okay. Worship and praise historically through the church, even in the book of Acts, has looked different I was thinking about the the history of worship in this church, and I found an old VHS tape. Marta uh, gave it to me, and I looked at the date on this VHS tape, and it was 23 years ago today. And I thought, well, that's a, I've got to show at least a part of this of this tape. So I had. Um, Melissa's father helped me because what do you do with a VHS tape? Like, what is that? And so we had it converted to DVD and I had it converted to put on my computer. And we're going to just watch just a very short clip of the worship service by Joy Song. You remember Joy Song? Oh, yeah. We're going to watch just a short clip of that from 23 years ago.
Remember that? Who might have been there that night? Who thinks they could have been there? Marta would be the one that's, that is, was in the video, and there's others you probably recognized. BJ was joined Joy Song, he said, just a couple months after this when he moved to the area. Um, worship has changed, and, and how we worship has changed, but that isn't significant. The, the significant part of what we see in Acts 2 is that we are a worshiping community of God's people. So what is it? I mean, if, if how we do it has changed over the years, then what is worship? And really, the, the idea is just this. It's recognizing and responding. Worship and praise is recognizing and responding. Okay, I put a definition up there. It's recognizing, it's recognizing and responding in the value, in the beauty, and the superiority and value of Jesus Christ and responding with your voice in song. But really, I just want to focus on right now just this idea that worship and praise is recognizing and it's responding. I mean, this is the word worship. The old English word for worship is worth-ship. Valuing, assessing the value of something. Thinking about what is the value in this item or whatever it may be and responding based on the value of what's in front of you. Determining the worth of something. It's the parable in Matthew 13 that we've talked about. Matthew 13, 4, I'll read it. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. I mean, the, the story in one verse is incredible. I mean, you just can picture this vacant lot sitting next to this man for many, many years. And every day, he walks by this vacant lot. He walks by it so often, he forgets that it's even there. It's for sale for $100,000. Okay, I'm just... I'm, I'm adding some of these, these details. But it's for sale. And it is way too much money for this man. He can't even think about getting this land because if he wants to get this vacant lot that he walks by every single day, he has to sell everything he has to get it. But then one day his friend comes up to him and he said, do you know what's in that field? He says, there's treasure in, in this lot. And that night, he goes and he discovers the treasure in the lot. The pearls, the jewels, the money, the coins. And I would have loved to be at the breakfast table that next morning when he tells his wife, we are selling everything we have to get the money to buy this lot. But this is what he's doing. He is recognizing, he is understanding, assessing the value of the lot. And because there's treasure in this lot, he's responding appropriately. It's like the show I was watching a few weeks ago of um, the Antique Roadshow. I've mentioned this show before. I guess I like this show. That's embarrassing a little bit. But the man that came in front of the, the assessor brought a Rolex watch. And as he described this Rolex, Rolex watch, he described how in, when he was in the U.S. Air Force, he bought it. 40, it was in 1974, and he said he wanted a Rolex 
that he could use to go scuba diving. And so he gave a month of his pay, $345, to buy this Rolex Oyster Cosmograph watch. And he said the watch came in, he said it was beautiful. He said it was so beautiful that he couldn't wear it. So he got that watch and he put it in a safe box at a bank. And he said, I never looked at it for 40 years. And he said he pulled it out and he thought it might be worth something. So literally he took it out of the box and he brings it to this assessor. And the guy, the collector, who's looking at this watch is telling them about how nice this watch is. That Paul Newman wore it in a movie. And that this is probably the nicest, cleanest Rolex watch that is in existence. And he says, he says that the value of the watch is between five dollars and $700,000. And the guy passes out, right? He's, he's on the ground. Determining the value of something and responding based on the value. It's th- once you recognize that, that it has so much value, then you respond appropriately. There was another toy collector who found, who found a white Camaro Hot Wheel. Okay, now we've been playing with Hot Wheels in my house, so this hits close to home. Like a lot of Hot Wheels with my boys. And this toy collector realizes that this Camaro is worth $100,000. Like, can I have one of those? Like, can I? Maybe. But if, if, that, if you learn that one of your Hot Wheels that's sitting in your toy bin at home was worth $100,000, it would be no big deal if you had to spend some money to get that $100,000 check. If they told you that to get, the, to get the check for this Camaro, you've got to fly to Germany. Because that's where they're going to they're gonna take that Camaro and they're going to give you a $100,000 check. Would that be a big deal if you had to fly to Germany to do that? Absolutely not. Because we're responding to the value of what's in front of us. Okay, this is what, this is what worship is. Recognizing the value and responding appropriately. What's the value? Like, what's the value that we recognize as we come into this room in worship? That Jesus is superior. That he's superior in beauty, that he's superior in value, that he's superior in essence. And we respond to the fact that Jesus is so much greater than anything we've ever known or anything we've ever experienced. It's the story that I heard a pastor share about a young man who wanted to follow in his parents' footsteps for this particular career. And and all of his life was focused on this career path. And his parents put so many resources, so much emphasis on this specific career. And as he was in grad school, he was caught for cheating. And this, the hope for becoming a professional in this career was completely gone. And what happened to this, to this young man was, was devastating. He ended up going to a mental hospital because he was so lost without this career. Until one day, a pastor sat with this man in the mental hospital. 
And he told them about the superior love and the superior value, the superior essence of who Jesus Christ is for him, that God sent his son Jesus out of his his lavish love for him, for him. And the man sitting in this hospital hears of this value that is in the God who created him and sent Jesus. And he completely breaks down. But once he recognized the value of what God has done in Jesus Christ, he responds. And according to to what this pastor was sharing, against all the odds of all the medical professionals, within a week, this man was out of the hospital. Because now all of a sudden, everything has changed that he has recognized the worth, the superior beauty, value, and essence of Christ. This is what we do in worship, or this is what we should be doing in worship. That we come in together, and we are reflecting on and thinking about the superiority of Christ. And then how do we respond? Once we reflect on that, we think on that, we respond in singing. This is what David does in Psalm 40. Psalm 41 talks about how David is stuck in a pit, in a bog, but that he is rescued and he's put up on this rock. And what does he do as he reflects on him being saved from this awful situation? He sings a song out of just this overflow of gratitude. He worships. And so this is what praise is. This is how the first church could praise, even though people were being killed for their faith. People were being burned for their faith. People were being robbed for their faith. They could still praise God when they came together because they recognized the value of Christ above and beyond anything that they were facing. And they responded with praising and singing and song and encouragement with one another. And so we said, the question I've been asking, what is praise? It's recognizing and responding to Christ in a, in a manner that's worthy for who he is, and that's what worship is. But what does worship do for us corporately as a body? It gives us a God-centered perspective. God-centered perspective. Here's what I wrote. When we recognize and respond to the superiority and beauty and value of Jesus, everything else falls into its rightful place. When we come together and we recognize and respond in song and worship of who Jesus is, everything else falls into its place. It gives us perspective on what we're facing. We can be overwhelmed with the day-to-day. We can be overwhelmed with our situation at work or at home. But what worship allows us to do is it allows us to kind of transcend and rise above our day-to-day situation and say, Jesus is superior. I can face anything that's in front of me. It's kind of like you're waiting in a line for something. Nobody likes waiting in lines. Took Truman to Hershey Park this summer. We waited in line for a water ride. It was like an hour and a half. And he, we really wanted to do this water ride. Hour and a half. Get to the very front. And they closed the gates. They said, I don't want to get too, I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but they said there's a thunderstorm. 
Like, it's sunny out here. Like, what are you talking? Like, no, like 15 miles down the way, there's a thunderstorm. I'm like, let us on this ride. Okay, we've been waiting. Nobody likes to wait in line, but let's just pretend all of a sudden you're waiting in line and you realize that there is someone in front of you who is famous, someone that you love. Maybe it's Carson Wentz. Maybe it's Blake Shelton. Maybe it's Joanna Gaines. I don't know who you love and who you would listen to. But if you're waiting in line, we're at Hershey Park and Carson Wentz is in front of us. All of a sudden, waiting in line means nothing because Carson Wentz is in front of us. And that means we get to have a chance to have a conversation. It's perspective, right? When we worship, it grounds us and helps us to realize that whatever we're facing it's not as big as the superiority of Jesus Christ. One illustration that I think is helpful, it's like we were going on a hike. You're hiking in the woods and it's foggy. Okay, and you're hiking and you're hiking and all of a sudden the fog, it disappears. And you realize that right to your right side is a 5,000 foot cliff. While you were hiking though, when it was foggy, you didn't see that cliff. Oh, now that the fog is gone, you see that cliff, and what do you do? You step to the side because that makes you really nervous. This is what worship is. We recognize the immensity, the worth of Christ and, our, and God the Father, and we worship him in that. And as a church, we do this corporately. This is why we do this together, because what we do on a Sunday morning in singing songs is it's, we're in essence, we're reminding each other of the value of Christ, right? That if you're not feeling like worship today for whatever reason, maybe you're not feeling well, you've had a, a bad week, or, or you're not looking forward to something, whatever is causing you to not want to recognize and respond to the superiority of Christ. When we come in here corporately, it's like we're reminding one another that Jesus is ultimate, that we are together saying as a family of God, he is ultimately worthy. And so corporate worship is so important because it is a weekly reminder to one another about the value of Christ. And so not only did the first church worship, okay, we're going to kind of change or kind of change gears to how the, worship, the first church fasted as well. And fasting and worship go together. These two disciplines, these two activities of the church go together hand in hand. I'll put this slide up, this next slide here. Maybe I don't have it. Here's what I'll say. When worship is declaring the worth of Christ in song, fasting is declaring the worth of Christ in abstaining. Okay? Worship is declaring the worth of Christ by responding in song. Fasting is declaring the worth of Christ in saying, I will abstain from something that I have overvalued or just valued to show the worth of Christ. And the first church worshiped and fasted together. Acts 13, you have a, the, the church of Antioch. Where they're at this point as this little local church in Acts 13 and they're, they're thinking about sending 
Paul and Barnabas out in Acts 13 says this, verses 1 and 3. There was a church in Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. You see, this first church is thinking about their next step as a church. Where are we going to send Paul and Barnabas? And how did they, how did they respond to that? They fasted, they worshipped, and they prayed. The next chapter in Acts 14, you see Paul and Barnabas, as they have been sent, they start to kind of revisit some of these cities with new converts. And as they revisit these new cities that they have seen some conversions in, they're starting to put together the structure of these little churches. And as they put the structure of these churches, they're praying and they're fasting according to Acts 14. Who should be leadership in these churches? And I tell you all of this just to say that it, is, it was a practice of the first church when they wanted to hear from God or they wanted to make a big decision going forward that they would fast and they would worship and they would pray. And so this is why we are talking about this, is that if we're going to worship God and we are going to recognize and respond rightfully, some of us might have to fast from something that we overvalue. And so this second point on fasting, how you fast isn't that significant. It's not important. There's nothing sacred about a 40-day fast at Lent. There's nothing sacred about it. Fasting historically in the church has been pretty legalistic and pretty, and pretty rigid, especially from the Roman Catholic Church. As we've talked about the history of the church, especially the early church, you had to fast for Lent for those 40 days, kind of following in the footsteps of Jesus' 40-day fast. And if you were able to fast those 40 days, then you would earn merit in God's eyes. That's not what we're doing. How you fast isn't that significant to me as, as one of the pastors. I don't care if it's a seven-day fast, if it's a one-day fast, if it's a meal every day, once a week. I don't care if it's 400 days of fasting. I don't care the length. I don't care what exactly you're doing. Because it's not, we're not trying to, I'm not trying to be legalistic here. I'm not trying to say you have to do this to earn favor with God. Here's what I'm saying. If we're going to feast in worship, that might mean we have to fast from something. If we're really going to feast in understanding the value of Christ, then we might have to put something aside. We got an email from Truman's teacher... She's here this morning, so we can talk about this. Miss Joy sent an email to, to the class, and my son's in, in their class. It was the nicest beatdown I've ever received. <laughs> the kindest way. I'm like, she's so nice. She's talking, and this is how the email essentially went. It, um, 
you know, I can overvalue my phone. I'm talking as if I'm her. I can overvalue my phone and my boys. We've talked about it. I'm like, she's, she's sharing, but she was very kindly getting to the point um, that as she's worked with the kids, they had an exercise where they were, um, where they were looking at the past and looking at their, their grandparents and how school was. And one of the big difference was devices. And as she's having this communication with all the kids, um, what, she was, what she did and what she was doing was she was communicating with us that the kids were able to um, share and articulate how they felt la- less valued than their parents' devices. And they're sharing this with her. How that when they're trying to talk to their parents that they're on their phones and that they feel less valued than the phones. And so Joyce was being super kind in how she wrote this email because she was um, owning it herself, but making a point that our kids are saying they feel less valued than our devices. What I'm saying is if for this class and for us, for me and for my wife and these parents in this class, if our kids are saying that we overvalue our phones and it's affecting our relationship with our kids, could that also be happening in our relationship with Christ? And so what fasting is, is saying, I'm going to take the crutch away that I've been leaning on. I'm going to take the value that I've placed in these things, most of them harmless, And I'm going to do it for a season so that I can truly feast in worship with Christ. This is the heart of fasting. Saying no to something we've overvalued. So that we can better understand the value of Christ. And so, again, I've said it. It doesn't matter when or where or really what this looks like for you. But for me, Lent is a great season to fast in. This Wednesday will be Ash Wednesday in the church. Protestant and Catholic will be starting a 40-day fast leading up to Easter. And for me, it's a great season to, to fast in because of the significance of what we're headed towards. The significance of the re- resurrection, it's so vital. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians he says, if the resurrection doesn't, didn't happen, then what we are doing right here this morning is a waste of time. He doesn't say it like that. He says it's vain. It's vain. Like, we have other things that we, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, we are wasting our time. It's a beautiful day. Let's get outside and go do something. Because if the resurrection didn't happen, there are more important things to be doing. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians also says this. He says that the resurrection is the most important thing. That's what Paul says. He said it's, this should be of first importance. Like don't lose track of the meaning and value of the resurrection. And then later in 1 Corinthians he says, I am solely focused on nothing but Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. I am solely focused, 1 Corinthians 2. I am focused completely on Christ and his crucifixion. And the question for us is, are we that way? 
Like, do we understand the significance of the resurrection? Are we, like Paul saying, we are solely focused on Jesus? Focused. Like, everything is attuned to him. And so for me, Lent is a great way to say no to something that's distracting and to be like Paul and say, I want to be solely focused on Christ. And so you, it doesn't matter how you fast. You know, there's fasting in the Bible because of, there's fasting over repentance of sin. Sometimes there's fasting over over heartbreak, like you'd see someone in the scriptures who experienced something devastating, and so they respond to the devastation by fasting and depending on God. Sometimes you see fasting, like we, like we read in Acts, right before the church would go and do something great or where, what direction they should go. Perhaps you want to fast because you want a greater awareness of the cross and the resurrection. That's all. Whatever you choose to fast for, that's fine. Okay, Jesus is worthy. He is worthy. And so my encouragement to you this week, as you contemplate Easter that's coming, as you contemplate your life and where you are and how you're doing and what you're experiencing, if if you choose to fast, that is great. But it is between you and God. This is not legalism. However... It is so good to feast in worship and to let go of the crutches that we've put in our lives. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy. And I think that's what we need to see more than anything else this morning. You are worthy of our worship and our praise. God, give us this perspective May worship, even now in this last song, may we get this perspective of your greatness and your goodness and your love and your mercy. And if some of us choose to fast for Lent or maybe it's fasting for some other decision that's coming down the road, God, we pray that you would help us to be humble, to be honest, because our heart is we want to feast completely on you. And so God, we pray that you would help us as we worship. We pray it all in your name. Amen.